Beyond Belief Sobriety is a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. This episode is taken from one of the live streams that Mary C. and I do every Saturday at 11 o'clock a.m. Central Time, and it's all about relapse. During the conversation, Mary and I will be referring to an article titled Relapse Prevention and the Five Rules of Recovery that was published by the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine back in 2015, and the article was authored by Stephen M. Moemis. Our live streams are interactive, so you'll often hear us refer to and respond to comments from listeners who are posting in the live chat on Facebook and YouTube. Before we begin, I would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's a husband, wife, daughter, son, mom, dad, best friend, colleague, job, hobby, or just yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery, we're all in this together. On Beyond Belief Sobriety, our mission includes building a strong community, staying connected, and working to break the stigma. That's why we've partnered with Soberlink, to expand and strengthen our community even further. Soberlink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition, that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip or relapse. Soberlink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help rebuild trust and foster peace of mind. Soberlink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at soberlink.com slash BBS. And now, episode 278, about relapse. The amount of shame and guilt that goes into relapse is, and, it, and I've noticed in sponsees that it keeps them from telling the truth, and it just keeps the relapse going longer. And from my personal journey, um, I have 27 years since a drink. However, 11 years ago, so I was at 16 years I uh, smoked a joint with the equivalent of a joint and I had um, talked myself into not telling anyone that that's what I was going to do because I wanted to keep my, this is okay. So my sobriety date kept me sober for a very long time. Like I didn't want to take another white chip. So I can see where sobriety dates can really work in your favor until it doesn't. So the sobriety date for me couldn't be the only thing that was keeping me sober because one day there was going to be something that came up and I justified it and then kept it hidden. And then after I did it, I didn't, I lived, it was in California and I was coming back to Georgia and I didn't want anyone to know, of course, that I had done that. And, but I took a white chip in California and started over and told people, and they were all California sober kind of people. And were like, well, how many times did you really do it? Like it doesn't really count. And it, it really wasn't about, the substance for me, it was about being dishonest that I was going to not tell anyone. And the dishonesty for me was the relapse that my pride over my sobriety date was going to keep me from telling the truth 
to my home group back in Georgia where that I'd been gone from for a year. And so that was what I felt like taking a white chip over again about was that my own emotional uh, integrity had been um, had gotten very weak and that I was lying to myself and justifying things. And then I also got to that place because I wasn't going to meetings and I lived down a dirt road, which was an hour from the nearest town. And I didn't have a local sponsor. And I, you know, I can see now the red flags, like it was a process that led up to that moment where I made that decision. And once I made that decision, I didn't want to tell anybody that was my decision because I was going to do it. And then after I did it, it was not that big a deal. I, I mean, for me personally, the substance, the substance use, I was not drawn to it. It wasn't like I couldn't stop doing it. It was just to me, the whole dishonesty around it to me was disgusting for my personal insides. And so um, I understand it. And I understand how people hide it and why they hide it and how it happens. And I think if the person that relapses can actually see the warning signs and learn a lesson from it, then that's the takeaway. What, not just what you did, but what did you learn? Exactly. That's yeah. And, and as Robert points out, I've never liked it when someone is told they are starting over or beginning or a beginner again, especially if they've been sober for a number of years, that, is so important to remember because there's a lot of shame, obviously, that we're going to bring on ourselves if we do have a relapse. And in AA, it says, yeah, a lot of sponsors say, start all over again. It's like, and, and that compounds the shame because it's like, you feel like, God, I, I just totally screwed up all this time, the last seven years or whatever that I've been sober, I must not have learned anything. So I got to start all over. No, you're just continuing to learn, you know, recovery is a process of change and it does have some ups and downs. So just because you have a relapse, even if it's a bad relapse, that doesn't negate the time that you were clean and sober and were learning and growing at all. And you just build on that from that relapse. You build on it, but you can't go back to the sobriety you had prior to the relapse. It is a different terrain now. And a lot of people I know that relapse say, oh, I want to get back to where I was when I had 17 years, but you really can't go back to where you were because we're not looking that way. We're moving forward. That's a really good point that you're, you are really right about that. I, I've heard that often that you, I've been in meetings before where someone does come back from a relapse and they're constantly thinking back to how it was and they want that back. And you're right. You can never go back. No, you can't. You can't. You're not you the gotta go forward. That's right. Learn from it, but move on and think about. For, you got. You got. You're so right about that. that's a really good point. Rich says so true. The further I get into sobriety, the more I have difficulty with dishonesty, even with little white lies. I think. I think that's the biggest thing. You know, whenever I have drunk dreams, and it's been a while since I've had them, but the, you know, a drunk dream being that I have a dream that I've been drinking, and usually for me, it's like I have a. I get a DUI or something, and, or but but the bad part of it is I drank and I'm ashamed and I'm not telling anybody. Exactly. And you're it takes so much energy to keep secrets. Yeah. So I can I can see the value in, you know, being honest about be well the, yeah, you, if you're going to deal with it, you got to be honest about it. You know, and and if you're honest with other people, then it's easier to be honest with yourself about it as well. But but there's no shame. There shouldn't be any shame attached to this. I mean, it's natural to feel it, I suppose, but uh, but but hopefully not to to dwell in that in that feeling too long because it's really not it's really not productive. No, it's really not productive. And you know, and a lot of people in certain 
recovery communities don't like to talk about relapse or they don't like to say what this reading says that relapse is a part of recovery. Just to even say that sentence, I think a lot of um, more fundamental recovery people in the AA sense don't believe that relapse has to be, because whenever I've said it, I've gotten a blowback from saying it in traditional environments that it doesn't have to be like, if you even talk about it, then you're giving it permission. I've heard that too. In fact, I ran across something I was, before I do these, I do some nominal Google searching, but anyway, in one of my Google searching, I ran across like an essay someone wrote about, and it was the essence, what you just said is that that relapse is not part of recovery. In other words, it's saying that you should never have, you should never have to relapse or whatever. And ideally that'd be wonderful if you didn't, but unfortunately, I think most do. I mean, it is part of. In fact, if you really think about it, before I ever got into recovery, before I even went to my first AA meeting, all I was doing was relapsing. And my 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 first um, attempt to seek help, you know, by going to that first AA meeting was to deal with that relapsing because my my the way that I drank was that. I would, you know, lose control. I would get into trouble. I would feel bad. I'd say, okay, I'm going to do, I'm not, I'm not going to do this again. Right. I'm not going to mess up like this again, only to mess up again. And it was just a pattern all the time, you know? And finally I said, enough is enough. I can't, I can't do this on my own and, and got, and got some help. This article that I ran across, it, it was published by the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. And it was written by Stephen M. Malemus. And he is a physician and who, who um, specializes in addiction. But he wrote this article that talks about relapse being, not being a gradual process. There's, there are, are actually stages that we go through. And the earlier that you can recognize some of your thinking or some of the patterns, the earlier you can catch it, the better. And so anyway, I'm just going to read a little bit of what he wrote, and maybe we can use this to help us with our conversation. But he says that there are four main ideas in relapse prevention. First, relapse is a gradual process with distinct stages. And the goal of treatment is to help individuals recognize the early stages in which the chances of success are greatest. Second, recovery is a process of personal growth with its developmental milestones, and each stage of recovery has its own risk of relapse. And then third, the main tools of relapse prevention are cognitive therapy and mind-body relaxation, which change negative thinking and develop healthy coping skills. And then fourth, most relapses can be explained in terms of a few basic rules, and educating, learning about those rules can help people focus on, on what's important. And then in the article, it goes into some of those, which we can go into, but it makes sense to me that relapse doesn't happen all at once. Um, I have not had, I have not had a relapse, but I have had a close call and it definitely started. I could, I looking back, I can see how it happened. Okay. First of all, this is what was going on in my life. I was having, I wasn't, I wasn't happy at work. I was having a lot of stress at work. I was, I was a salesperson. I wasn't selling enough and I just, I was just unhappy and I was having a lot of conflict with my boss because um, I wasn't selling, I wasn't producing, right? So I had that going on. And I also had financial stress, you know, because I wasn't selling, I, my income was totally dependent on selling this stuff, insurance. <laughs> and so I, if I wasn't doing that, so I had, I, had the, I had that going on. And what happened is I was 
during my work day and I, I, I was working, driving my car around and I would stop at a, you know, a convenience store sometimes to get, get a bottle of water or whatever. And I went into one of these convenience stores and across the, um, the counter, I, I could see this behind this guy, a bottle of apricot brandy. And it was so wild, Mary, because I remembered a time in high school when I was running around with my friends having a great time in a car drinking apricot brandy, apricot brandy. I, I never thought of it, you know, but for some reason, seeing that bottle reminded me of some, what I thought was a happy, fun experience with apricot brandy. And I think with that, not, not really at the front of my brain, but subconsciously I was thinking, I was making the connection of I'm miserable now that apricot brandy experience was really good. Okay. So now I'm thinking about that freaking bottle all the time it began and the more i think about it the more i feel like i shouldn't be thinking about it and i'm not telling anybody i'm thinking about exactly. it. exactly yes <laughs> so it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows yes the not telling anybody i think is key yeah so then you know what happens is eventually i get to this point i i i, I decide okay you know what i'm gonna do I'm going to go to that store. I'm going to get that. I'm going to go to a liquor store. I'm going to get a bottle of apricot brandy and I'm going to take it home and I'm going to put it in my coat pocket in my closet. So it will be there when I need it. Okay. So I'm, I'm beginning to rationalize that. Okay. I, I think that I'm not going to drink now, but I'm going to be ready. So when I need it, it's there. And I'm going to keep it in the coat pocket in the closet. Right. Just make it convenient. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to put it. I had a roommate at the time. I'm not going to put it in the cabinet where my roommate would see it or anything. So anyway, so this is insane. So, um, And it's insane, but you don't even realize how insane it is. I don't. So anyway, I get, I, this is getting really dangerous. So I get to the place where I actually go to the liquor store. I walk into the liquor store and I swear to God, this is like a movie scene where it's like, Everything, everything, I'm just crazy. Everything's spinning around. I'm like, I'm panicking, you know. I'm like, oh my fucking God, I'm really, you know, I'm in a bad situation. So, anyway, I turned the, the liquor store got people, and the liquor store must thought I was insane. I just turn around and I, I run away. I leave the liquor store. I don't buy the bottle. I go back to my apartment and I call my then sponsor and I tell him about what had happened and what had been happening all that time. And um, he probably told me to pray or something. I don't know what he told me, <laughs> but, but it doesn't matter. Just telling him what, what happened relieved me of that thought. And Mary, the next day, I didn't have the thought. I was okay, and I moved on. But that was a close call. It probably lasted for a couple of weeks, I think, that whole thinking process until I finally got to where I couldn't stand it anymore. And a good thing you told someone when you got to that point and you ran out of the store. It could have been a whole nother story. It looks like John might have read this article. Maybe he's yes, he did. So John is pointing out some rules of, I think, I think it's rules of recovery. Okay. And it says, um, change your life, change your life. That's easy. Be completely honest, ask for help, practice self care and don't bend the rules. Well, I think, when you were reading it earlier from that article, the number three thing it was about self-care and mind-body connection and cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think for me, that is what contributed to my relapse was that I was so tense and having a stressful time. And the, the self-care 
I was looking for like a way to relax and be on a different level than I was on. And I think self-care for me is the most important part of my recovery. And that includes meditation, paying attention to mind, body, and physical and mental and emotional and keeping all of that going as well as recovery, you know, meetings and podcasts and sponsees and all that, having a sponsor. I'm traditional in that way. Um, but that was a great way to sum it up, John, in those little five steps. Yes. Yeah, it really was. He, and he also talked about self-care and sometimes in recovery, I've, and, and it, 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 no matter who I talk to, it, what, what guest I have, They'll always mention, and it's understandable that as an addict or while we while we were actively drinking, that there's a certain amount of selfishness with with the addiction. And of course, in AA, they they really focus on being self centered bastards and everything that we are. So, and I know I was this way that I would feel sometimes that if I did something for me, that I'm being selfish. And there's a real difference between between being selfish. And being and, and practicing self care, and I can't remember exactly what he said, but being selfish is like taking too much. Self care is just taking the right amount of what you need for yourself to take care of yourself. Yes, and and my level of how how I'm breathing and how tense my body is is also a reflection of what's going on in my mind, and those two go together. And um, what so what I did after that incident I had 11 years ago when I came back to Georgia and I. T- told my home group, I told the people around me what the warning signs were if I was on a slippery slope so that other people were aware of what I would look like if I quit, you know, like I would say, if you see me not coming to meetings regularly or making excuses, or if I'm particularly ill at ease, or if I'm not, uh, if I'm isolating, these are all signs for me, you know, based on what happened to me before, if I'm withholding, then I need you to call me on it. So that other people would be aware of what, you know, because we don't always call ourselves on our shit. And a lot of times, like you said, you don't even know you're in it when you're in it. That's right. Those things that you mentioned, he pointed out in this article as well. John says being negative and stressed out leads to hopelessness and misery. So you might as well drink or or use some for relief. Being negative and stressed out. Man, that negative thinking, that is so powerful. Um, or negative self-talk. And I was engaging in that, that example that I gave of that two weeks when I'm obsessed about the bottle of apricot brandy. There's a lot of negative self-talk that's going on about me. You know, I'm a failure at work. I can't sell insurance. I hate my job. I hate myself. I hate everything about life. You know, really totally negative and stressed out about everything. Of course, I'm wanting. And then I'm thinking back when I was 16 years old in 1970-something, driving around with a bottle of apricot brandy, having a great old time. Right. And you remembered (laughs) what it was like to have fun. Mm -hmm. And you wanted to have fun. And the dopamine is going around in my brain. And I think self-care is also about scheduling times for fun in our lives. Because if I'm not sober to have fun in my life, then what's the point? You know, and and we kind of lose track of having fun. I think in what fun activities are, and they're more than just avoidance, avoidance of the present moment. It's more than just doom scrolling. I mean, you know, like you got to figure out what's fun for you and plan it and do it. Now I can tell that you're a person in recovery because you're, you're, you're talking about all the things that this Mr. Expert wrote in his article and you already know all this stuff. (laughs) That's because he said that you have to relearn what's fun. You know, you really do. Go to the club and blow it out or go to sit around a fire pit and just, 
wake up in the sunrise, you know, and still in the chair at the fire pit. I mean, to us, blowing it out was going into oblivion. For me, fun was and dancing and all that. And so it's very different when you're sober. Things are different. The way we used to blow it out when we were drinking is different than when we're sober. And I can have just as much fun as I ever had, minus the guilt and shame. Do you know, I don't know what Vipassana, I, I'm probably not pronouncing it right. I, is this type of meditation, Vipassana, is that where you... It's called Vipassana. Vipassana. Do you know what that is? It's a Buddhist meditation. Correct me if I'm wrong out there, y'all, but it's Buddhist meditation where you um, basically concentrate on your breath and it's a silent meditation and um, for, you go on like a 10-day silent retreat, Vipassana retreat, and you sit for long hours and then you have a counselor at the retreat and he, you talk to them about what's coming up for you in silent meditation. Oh, that does sound So it's kind of like checking out of the real world and going to, or at least in my experience, going to a retreat where you can do Vipassana. Oh, cool. Have you done that before? I have not because um, I'm not the kind of person that can sit still. That, that kind of meditation is, you know, not on my list of um, activities to do. Like it's not on my bucket list. Yeah, neither is climbing Mount Everest. That's not on my bucket list either. So yeah. yeah, it was someone from the Facebook group shared that that's what they do is they like they they use that to help to connect with their body, and then Rich points out that it's easy for um, him to confuse self care with self indulgence. Agreed, and a lot of us have guilt around being self indulgent just from growing up in this culture or in your tribe. And self care can be massage, it can be yoga, it can get a mani pedi, it can be going to a salon, it can be. It could be having an hour a week to go to a book club. You know, it could be all kinds of things, self-care. And that's up to us to figure out because if I feel like if I'm going to stay sober, I need to know what those things are. Well, this guy, uh, Melamus, Steve Melamus, he also identified stages of relapse that I thought I might go through. Um, he says that the key, um, the key to relapse prevention is I understand that relapse happens gradually. It happens gradually. Like, you know, in my example, it definitely was. It begins weeks and sometimes months before an individual picks up a drink or a drug. And uh, he's found it helpful to think in terms of three stages of relapse, emotional, mental, and physical. And he says that emotional relapse is during an emotional relapse, I'm quoting, individuals are not thinking about using. They remember their last relapse and they don't want to repeat it. But their emotions and behaviors are setting them up for relapse down the road because they're not consciously thinking about using during that stage. And denial is a big part of emotional relapse. And these are the signs that he's identified for emotional relapse. Bottling up emotions, isolating, not going to meetings, going to meetings but not sharing, Focusing on others or focusing on other people's problems or focusing on how other people affect them or poor eating and sleeping habits. Those are, those are basically, and he says the common denominator of emotional relapse is poor self-care, which like we've been talking about, in which self-care is broadly defined and to include emotional, psychological, and physical care. Awesome. Perfect. Well said. That makes sense to me that, you know, it would start off, you know, emotionally and if you do, th and, and bottling up emotions, isolating are probably two keys for you. Are those some of the things that you, that you're telling people to look out for you? The, some of the warning signs, I think you said some of yes. that. Yes, because I'm my own worst enemy and I can justify anything between my ears. 
And so I need, I need my community to call me on things, but I need to tell my community what it looks like if I'm slipping. And I'm the only one that really knows that. And, you know, when I did that, it was probably a long time coming because I was on a year of a job in California and it was coming to the close of that year. So I thought, oh, I will just do this and then I'll go back to my regular life and no one will know, you know, and it was, um, yeah, it wasn't worth all that. I just don't, I don't recommend it, you know, and, and I learned from it. I learned from it. And so I think, like I said, if we can get the lesson in it, then it wasn't worthless. Absolutely. That, you know, that's one good thing I will have to say about what I got out of AA in a, in a sense is that I can take tragedy or I can take, you know, like the lowest part of my life and turn it around to learn something from it, but not just to learn something from it but to find purpose in it and helping other people from it. Yes, absolutely. Yes. And Joanna points out that drinking's definitely prevented her from doing things in life that she finds fun. And that's interesting. A couple of weeks ago um, at our Tuesday meeting, we, we had our meeting was about having purpose and sobriety. And part of having purpose is having something in your life that you really enjoy, you know, um, fishing or reading or sewing or whatever. You know, and or at some pastime that we really enjoyed before our drinking started taking things away from us. And one of the things that drinking took away from me were, were, were the things that I used to enjoy doing. It started eating up all of my time. So I'm no longer doing the things that I did find truly fun. You know, you start thinking that, oh, it's fun to go out and drink or whatever. Yes. So you attach the drinking. And for me, drinking was always about oblivion. It wasn't about trying to stay awake and do stuff. It was about, I want to go to oblivion, but also fun for me is about getting in touch with what is fun, but also brings me inner peace and it shoots up the chemicals in my brain that create the feeling of fun and good. And I can do that with things that I consider fun, which for me could be artwork or um, any kind of crafting of any kind or painting or those kind of things work for me. Cause I get into a zone where I lose all track of time. And I'm just feeling inner peace. And that's fun. And also, so is exercise, because this increases all our chemicals. And we all know that, that we're at the mercy of the chemicals in our brains. And also part of recovery is learning what works for us. I like having a creative outlet. And the podcast has helped me a lot with that, obviously, or, you know, working on a website and things like that. Creative outlets are really important for me, because it does help me kind of get into a kind of a peaceful state of mind where I'm just focusing on whatever it is that I'm creating and just and enjoying that experience. And it's just nice. And it gives me goals and, and things like that and helps me learn and grow. So and you feel like you did something, you accomplished something. Yeah. And that's where the halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired comes in. Cause all those things are um, environments that we need to be aware of. I think you wrote this article because the guy says that too in this article. He, he, he says that one way, one of the best ways to, to recognize that you're not, Doing uh, practicing self care is the halt. Hungry? Am I hungry? Angry? Lonely? Tired? Yeah, and we're not really aware of ourselves in a lot of ways. We're just like on auto automatic in a lot of ways. And so the only way to turn that shit off was not looking at it, but just drinking, and that turns it off quick. Yeah, and that was an uh, yeah. My first experience with um, getting my own, well, when I was first getting sober, like the first thirty, sixty days or whatever, when I still had all my problems that were playing out that's what that was the hardest thing for me i wanted to drink because 
it could shut my mind off. It was, it really was the, the only way I knew to not have to have a crazy mind worrying and thinking about shit all the time. And I was terrified about what was going to happen to me in the future. It was so hard. And I knew I could drink and just drown all that stuff out to completely, you know, Oh, it's so hard. That's the toughest part, you know, of getting sober is you, you still have to deal with all the stuff that happened from your drinking. It's still playing out the first few months, maybe, and maybe several oh, yeah. months of your, years or even years. Yeah. It's You're tough, tough, tough. Yeah. It's really tough. It takes courage to be a sober person it does. in this world. Okay. So the next part of relapse is mental relapse. And he says in mental relapse, there's a war going on inside people's minds. Part of them wants to use, this is what I was doing with that apricot brandy. Part of them wants to use, but part of them doesn't. As individuals go deeper into mental relapse, their cognitive resistance to relapse diminishes and their need for escape increases. There are some signs of mental relapse. One, craving for drugs or alcohol. Two, thinking about people, places, and things associated with past use. That's what I was doing. Minimizing consequences of past use or glamorizing past use. Wow. Bargaining, lying, thinking of schemes to better control using, looking for relapse opportunities, and planning a relapse. Good God, that's where I was. <laughs> this happened like this happened like a long time ago, <laughs> decades ago, but I it's still fresh in my my mind, you know, like it could have just happened yesterday. Yeah. And I think once for me, it was like once I got to the planning because someone was coming to visit me from out of town and that was when I was going to do it. And we were going to share that activity together. Once I had made the plan, no one was going to ever talk me out of it. And I tell people that it's kind of like, if you know anything about cats, they usually like stare at each other and kind of get locked in before they actually have a cat fight. And you usually hear them going, but once for me with any substance that I'm addicted to, once I get to that level where it's a staring contest, I've fucking already lost. Because I'm going to go there if I get to that level. So I tell people to try to just don't get to that level because it's bigger than me. Like alcohol is bigger than me. If I get to the point where I'm trying to fight with it, it's going to win. So I do everything I can to deflect getting to that cat stare moment. LaDawn came into the room. And I want to point her out because, LaDawn, I'm going to embarrass you maybe in front of everybody. Put you on the spot. Put us all on the spot. But I, I would love to have her on the podcast sometime. LaDawn has... LaDon's interested in in um, podcasting or YouTubing about recovery. And she started her own YouTube channel, which you can check out. LaDon did it for real. And she's really trying to learn how to how to do this all. And um, I just kind of ran into her by accident. We were watching a nerdy thing about how to do streams, you know, live streams or whatever, <laughs> or, 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 or something gauging or learning about YouTube channels, some really totally nerdy thing and ran into her. So yeah, I would love to, I'd love to have you on LaDon and, and, and get to know you better and what you're doing. Cause I did, I went to your YouTube channel. I listened to some of your videos. I listened to some of your stuff. So I think it's really cool. I think it's cool. I love to, I love to see people doing this. You're awesome, LaDon. So good. Thank you for being good. here. Thanks for the new info. I'm going to look you up, LaDon. Yeah. <laughs> I just love to see people that are excited about doing something like that. You know, she's in recovery and she, she, she's excited about this, this learning about how to communicate it through this way. And the more voices that we have from all kinds of different perspectives, the better. 
So just really happy that I that we ran into each other um, it was just last week. And, and, you know, it was because I was sick. Um, so I didn't have this live stream to do. So I went to this nerdy thing where LeDon, LeDon also went. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Cool. Okay. So that was, that was the mental relapse thing. Very dangerous. That mental relapse, obviously, it precedes physical relapse. I didn't do that physical, but boy, I was there. So, you know, it's good to know about this stuff. You know, I don't know if, you know, when, when I was really crazy, if I could think about this stuff, but it's good to know about this stuff. And like you said, you know, let your friends know about it so that you say, if you see me doing this crap, you know, let me know because I might not be aware that I'm doing it. I might, I or denying that I'm doing it, you know? So and then I, it gives my friends permission to call me on it. And, you know, for me, it was always like, oh, I'm fine. I got this. I'm fine. I got this thinking that I got this. And I was really wrong about that. I really didn't. I wasn't. My, I need to constantly be putting more money in my sobriety bank account so that I was just out of funds. But you know what I love about this Joe's reading also for today says, um, it's reasonable to feel proud of our sobriety. It's best not to see the accumulating months or years as a status symbol, which happens in, we all know people that hey, say- I think I'm guilty of it. It's a status symbol because it shows that you went through that many 24 hours without using your substance and it won't keep you sober. It won't there in that moment when you're going to make a decision or make a plan, it's that's not going to be the thing that keeps you sober. So, you know, and people we all know in in group settings where people think they're, you know, and they're put on a pedestal like they have all this sobriety, but they really don't have any more or less emotional sobriety than somebody who's got six months or two months or, you know, you really can't use it as a status symbol and it's easy to get very prideful about it. And I was prideful about mine to the point I was going to tell a lie so that I could keep my sobriety date as if it was a status symbol. So I'm wholly understanding what the sentence means. I totally get it. Sometimes I wonder about this, 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 the thing of tracking time, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a conversation I had, like before I was even a year sober and I was noticing that my home group would have these anniversary meetings and people would celebrate one year, two year, whatever, make a big deal out of it. They'd celebrate. And I was just in awe, you know, that five years sober, whatever. I was just in awe of these people. But I asked this guy, this elder guy in the room, I said, you know, why, why don't we, instead of celebrating how long you've not drank, why don't we celebrate when you started into your recovery? So when you started going to AA and celebrate that time instead of just the time that you weren't drinking, he says, no, bad idea. Bad idea. He struck it down. But, <laughs> but I was thinking, I was thinking about that, you know, um, at the time. Oh, there's some good comments down here. I need to read these. Um, Joanna says it can be intimidating when others have 20 to 30 years of sobriety. and I only have a few days or months. Oh my God. I know it really can be. I was just like someone a year or two or three or four, but I couldn't even imagine 20 or 30 years of sobriety. I was talking to a guy yesterday for a podcast. I'm going to post on the 27th. He is so interesting, but he like most of us started having problems with alcohol as an adolescent. Right. And he ended up going to jail for like 20 years. He spent most of his life in jail. Yeah. Anyway, I was talking to him and I, and we were talking about the, how people, young people perceive people who are older than them. And you don't even have to be that much older. So like if you're like 19 years old and someone's 40, the 19 year old is going to say, I don't need this. This person doesn't understand me. They're old, you know, 
And it's the same thing kind of like with, with years of sobriety. Cause I remember with me just being sober for a couple of months. And if someone was sober for 20 years, I'm thinking, you don't know, you, you don't know what I'm dealing with right now. You, 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 you've been sober for 20 years. I, you know, I can't even relate to, to that. But he he reminded me, he says, yeah, but, you know, even old people were young at one time. And even people that have been sober for 20 or 30 years still remember what it was like. You know, I certainly do. And those are those early days. But, Joanna, you're right. It can be intimidating. And she also says, 35 years sober appeals to my ego. Same, same. But it won't keep me sober. It's just a number. It's what I'm doing for myself and others that's important. And then also in this reading, that is very true, John. Um, Also in this reading, he says, um, some of us will maintain sobriety in one addiction and innocently cross that invisible line with a new obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever else. So I'm always telling people, and this is how I was told, that addiction goes somewhere. So it's best to channel it. And it also can go into other things that need other 12-step groups or other smart recovery groups or other, any kind of reach out to other people who have this particular thing group. And it's like, just because I stopped drinking alcohol doesn't mean that that didn't get channeled somewhere else. And I could be crossing the line into unmanageability with a process addiction or retail therapy or whatever it is. We all know what substance abuse disorders are, process addictions. It can be a million different things internet addiction, all of those kind of things. I think just because we take a chip or we stop one doesn't mean that we're not forever vigilant on where the addictive part of ourselves goes. So true. And I have certainly during my time in sobriety have had other addictions creep up that I've gotten involved with, you know, and yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely very real. I mean, it's crazy, but the things I can get obsessed with, I mean, almost anything. <laughs> if I think about it, I can get obsessed with anything. It could be good or bad. Exactly. You know? Yes. Like if one is good, then 700 is even better. I mean, it's always about more. It's e- either about more or it's about escaping or avoidance for me. When it, and when it gets unmanageable, it gets unmanageable. And I've had things just as unmanageable as alcohol. Oh, my God. I have, I'll make a confession. I never thought that I would ever have this obsession. <laughs> this happened to me a few years ago. I was, obsess- I was obsessed about shopping, about buying clothes. Oh, my God. I could not believe this. And, I mean, driving, like, to the parking lot of Macy's and, like, feeling, like, really excited. This is – and then I'm looking at all these different clothes. What's going on with me? I'm not a clothes person. I'm not a fashion horse. But for some reason <laughs> – and then it's like the thrill of the hunt. Oh my god! And then you buy it, and then you bring it home, and the thrill's gone. It's a real thing. It's yeah. a real thing. Oh, it's a total thing. So Ladon says, "I was just saying to a friend yesterday. I don't compare days or years. I just live for today, and that's so, so, so important. I really, really agree with that. Yeah, Ladon says that she's spent huge amounts of money shopping. Sponsor's <laughs> getting on me. <laughs> it does happen for sure, and, it, and especially now you can shop online. Oh my god." Oh my God. And you can get really good deals. And I mean, I have a problem with that. I have to really look at what I'm doing in that. And I've been looking into, you know, I mean, there's a, if there, if you have something, there's somebody out there who's had it and learned from it and you can go get wisdom from them, whatever it is. Yeah. I got a book recently that's called how to break up with your phone. 
and it's for people that are addicted to their phone you know, like a lot of us are, I know I am. And so I reached out to an author that sort of has a plan. Oh, that's interesting. I'll let you know how it goes. Okay. That is interesting. I've had some really bad times with it, with the phone thing, especially with Facebook and stuff. I've really limited my Facebook activity to just like a few groups and for, for this podcast and stuff, I really kind of limited to that, but occasionally I will post something on my Facebook page, my, my public page. That's like controversial, but I always delete it like within a few minutes. I don't know why. I just well, you know, I know somebody that had a retail therapy problem, and what she would do is go to TJ Maxx and shop, you know, and look at everything and fill her basket, and then she would leave the basket there and go to her car. She would do the shopping experience, but not, but not actually buy anything. Yeah, <laughs> that's almost torture. <laughs> but it fulfilled her need for the hunt and the get, and then she actually left it there. And then I know also know people that do things like with food, like they'll order a dessert and then have it there, but then pour salt on it so they won't eat it. I mean, there's all kind of ways around getting through whatever your addiction is. And let's hope we can channel it into a positive way. Yeah. Okay. So, oh yeah, I wanted to point this out. When it comes to mental relapse, he wrote that occasional brief thoughts of using are normal in early recovery and are different from a mental relapse. So just having an occasional thought is one thing. That's not necessarily a mental relapse. But he says that when people enter a substance abuse program, I often hear them say, I, oh, didn't we just talk about this? I want to never have to think about using again. Okay, I'm thinking about the past. It can be frightening when they discover that they still have occasional cravings. They feel they are doing something wrong and that they've let themselves down and their families down. Oh, my God, that's what I was doing, too. Uh, just having a thought is not a big deal. And I've had thoughts before too, like, you know, on a hot summer day, you know, you're walking by somebody and they're drinking a cold beer or something that looks so good. You know, the occasional thought that just comes go by that, that happens, you know, that's not, that's not a big deal. That's not, that's not anything. And you can, and you can deal with it. You can say thought comes and goes, you know, I'm done. I, I, I know that's a bad idea. I don't need that. That guy can do it, but I can't do it. So that's fine. So that's something to, that's important. I felt after I first got sober, I, for at least eight years, I still had drinking thoughts. Like I want to drink. And I thought that meant I was doing something wrong and I felt guilty and ashamed, just like this author said. But you know, when you really think about it, we're wired that way. That's how our brains work. Of course, we're thinking that it doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the pudding. You're not going there with it. And the reason, you know, I wasn't telling anybody about my thoughts because I was thinking that I was a failure for even having these thoughts. Exactly. Good gosh. And they just build and build and build. And they build and build and build. And then nobody else is talking about it in your recovery circles. And so you automatically imagine nobody else has those thoughts. So if you do, something's wrong. So I welcome, I welcome people that relapse and I, you know, will be happy to talk to you all day long about it because it's, it's something that you can't shut yourself down guilty wise or shamefully about. Michelle's had, um, my confession has brought this out. Um, Michelle says that she's had issues with shopping. It can be devastating. I found when I first got sober, I really crave shopping more than alcohol. Wow. It just goes somewhere else. And John says, I relapsed a lot in my first 10 years of just going to AA meetings. My main problems were resentments and self-pity, just loads and just going to loads of meetings. Wow. A lot of good uh, comments here. This person, ghost, ghost fluff. For me, seeing that dude at 3 p.m. on a Saturday drinking his beer on a date outside a bar makes me fear for his liver more than my own. Interesting. So so he sees it and says, that's bad. 
Okay, I'm going to talk about physical relapse in the, as, the, as the last part of this one. So this is interesting in that, and I, and I, and I got this from Smart Recovery too, and I think that this, this can be complicated to think about it this way. And, and I don't even know if it's, an, if it's even necessary to think about it this way, the difference between a relapse and a, and a lapse. But anyway, let me read the, what he says. Physical relapse. Finally, physically relapse is when an individual starts using again. Some researchers divide physical relapse into lapse, which is the initial drink or drug use, and a relapse, a return to uncontrolled using. It says clinical experience has shown that when clients focus too strongly on how much they used during a lapse, they don't fully appreciate the consequences of one drink. Once an individual has had one drink or one drug use, it may quickly lead to a relapse of uncontrolled using. But more importantly, it usually will lead to a mental relapse or obsessive or uncontrolled thinking about using, which will eventually lead to a physical relapse. What I liked, what I found interesting about that is I think that if I say it was just a lapse, I have one beer or whatever, it's just a lapse. I'm okay. I moved on. You I might, I might be diminishing the significance of that. Yes. I could be lucky that it wasn't 12 beers and I got a DUI, but if I just said, uh, you know, just diminished it like that and not really appreciated the full significance of what happened, that's a different story, isn't it? So it's like, it's like. You don't want to just brush it off, do you? You don't want to beat yourself up over it, though. I feel like you have to do a full-blown autopsy, full-blown on what what led to it and get really clear about it. Or it'll just could happen again. Yeah, something happened. You, you, You could say that, wow, that was a close call. You know, but I better look, I better look at what happened and learn from it. It's not like don't beat yourself up about it. Don't, don't, don't like that, but at least learn from it. Okay. Right. It's so, not going to be like, oh, well, you know, I went, I blew it out last weekend, but I've started over, but it's really, I think it's a serious thing, you know, requires you to just be honest about what you were doing that led to that and what you were not doing that led to that. And how do you feel about that? And do you really want to live your life? Like I say, do you really want to live your life? Like you need 51% of yourself to not want to drink today, but do you really want to live at the 51% or, you know, what about the rest up to a hundred? There's a good life in there. You know, I don't want to just always be kind of white knuckling. So some other comments here, um, some good ones. Fleeting thoughts. My sponsor told me is normal in early sobriety. It helped me. They accept that they will come. Very true. Bobbert, when I usually, what I usually do in meetings is say my age when I picked up my last and my current age. I think age is more relatable than you're sober. Interesting. You mean your actual physical age? Okay. Okay. I don't like people to know. How old I am? <laughs> no, it's actually okay. You can't. You know what? You're going to get old. You just got to have to embrace it. You're lucky if you get old. That's true. That's true. You are. I mean, it, it could have. I could not have. Unbidden thoughts of drinking are not relapse. That is proof to me that I am still an alcoholic. That's the point. Time for action. But just don't keep going in that endless tape loop about it. That's when it's time to change course. Ladon's tried smart recovery. I, but there aren't many meetings in their area. There aren't a lot of physical um, meetings of smart recovery. They have made inroads into like um, VA centers and like in Kansas City, although there is another physical meeting here, but there aren't that many of them, but they do have a lot of them online. And I've been to some of them online and I do like it. 
um, I like to dip my foot in a little bit of everything, you know, but um, there, there's some, there's definitely some really good information and in smart recovery. And it's been a while since I've been to one of their meetings, but I, I do go to the online meetings and one of these days I'll go to a, a face-to-face meeting, but there's some good stuff there. I've learned a lot from it. Yeah. I think it's, it's just important to maintain awareness so that we're not out of control in any area of our lives as far as addictions go or avoidance or escape mechanisms because they can just get totally out of control. And like I said, be just as hard as alcohol, you know, addiction was for me. So what's your bottom line thought that you want to leave people with on this subject, Mary? That um, relapse is a part of recovery and it's okay. Um, It's not, doesn't mean it gives you a free pass. It just means it's, if you are or have relapsed and you're ashamed, just talk to somebody just, you know, don't keep it a secret. Reach out and tell someone and that will release the burden and the weight of it all to just say the truth out in the air takes the weight of it away. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.